gentlemen, boys and girls, Dying Time is here. That's right! We're talking Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, finally! On Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from Forest Green, or as close to it as we can possibly get. Uh, this is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters, and we will be unpacking all the gory details of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, in the hopes that a camper's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes we can tell about them. And as always, the only person that I trust to go with me and dig up an old serial killer and light its body on fire so I don't have hallucinations again is the one and only Jason. Gina Radcliffe, how you doing, Gina? It's 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 a new day, Patrick. I I, I feel refreshed. I I feel that we've uh, gotten through the, the darkest parts of the tunnel, and, and now we're we're out in the light again. <laughs> this is very true. Uh, this film is incredibly well lit. <laughs> every every part of the forest seems to emit a giant uh, Hollywood premiere style spotlight, so you can see every nook and cranny of it. Yeah, and it's also. So much better than part five. But we will get into that ever so briefly, just briefly. But first, we need to introduce our very special guest. You know him as the man who spent a lot of time figuring out what scares you. As the director of Room 237 and The Nightmare, it's the one and only Rodney Asher. How you doing, Rodney? I'm good. Hey, guys. Hello. So glad to have you here today. I Obviously, you are a man who knows film both inside and out you are an editor you are a director you are a producer so you can come at it this a lot of ways and you're also the one person when i talk about genre things i have never felt stupider and smarter at the same time talking about a subject than when i do with you so i'm very excited to have you on here <laughs> my my I'm, I'm I'm happy to be here on Friday the 13th. Well, it's something I'm especially glad to talk about. You know, it was one of my earliest introductions to horror. And I've seen every Friday the 13th film in the theater in their original run. Wow. So, I, and I don't know that I can say that about too many other, um, too many other franchises. So your first introduction, I assume then that maybe the original... 1980 Friday the 13th was your first one or did were you the first one you see a later one in a, a revival how did that work no 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 it was all the original run you know I saw it um you know I was probably 10 or 11 years old and you know I had incredibly permissive parents um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see Halloween me and my older sister mm-hmm. and you know my it wasn't my mom's cup of tea so she asked some stranger waiting in line um if he would if if you take us in with him, you know, which is the, I guess is the kind of things that would um, get you reported to um, Department of Health and Human Services these days. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, Halloween for me played as kind of an action movie, mm-hmm. you know, um, just, you know, sort of my my engagement with it. You know, it was a lot of suspense and then excitement and her fight back at the end. But Friday the 13th scared the hell out of me, um, you know, when, and I, when, when I saw that with my dad and another friend of mine. It bothered me it disturbed me that I, I mean i was sitting in the chair you know my knees up my feet on the you know my feet tucked in you know saying you know no 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 make it stop <laughs> <laughs> well i that either would make the viewing experience 
terrible or the best thing ever. And it was the best thing ever. I mean, like a lot, like a lot of, like like a lot of you know horror movies. You know, at least ones that have you know some intent on pleasing a crowd and not just you know sending out out to the world. You know, with the idea that you know life is meaningless and all hope has been extinguished. Um, <laughs> you know, like the last. You know the escape duel you know um you know final confrontation you know is cathartic yeah you know it's a lot like you know a roller coaster you know it was for me you know that the scarier you know that tick 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 right up to the hill is the more you know exhilarating you know the the last half can be and that first one has such a great first two thirds the only place it really kind of stumbles is the back third it it it's trying to replicate Halloween and it doesn't quite know how to do it. And then you sort of flip that with part two where the last third is so good uh, compared to the rest of the film. Uh, and the rest of the film is pretty good. But that that last chase is just so much better than I think people give it credit for. It's it's fantastic. But we're not here to talk about Let's talk about part one and part two, right? <laughs> I would direct you to the other 26 episodes of the Kill by Kill podcast. <laughs> and it's not to say we might not revisit them one day, but I think we do owe everyone uh, the chance to talk and listen about part six because many of our audience has uh, suffered through us talking about part five, where we, to sum it up, disliked that experience. It, into, yeah. yeah, with a with a uh, a hatred of that burns with ten thousand suns. And I, I was not a fan um, on its initial run, and I have never been tempted to revisit it. It's not necessary. Yeah, it don't. Really isn't. Yeah, uh, and the thing is, we have heard back from many people that like part five and that is that we do not want to take that joy away from them that is not our idea of a good time what you who's we like who, who's no, we mean, and are here on, on, on paper <laughs> on paper number five is the only one that you know is attempting to work as a mystery you know and i would say part part 10 and part six are amongst my favorites mostly because they allow themselves to you know satirize the series and are very and are very aware of the history and the tropes and break the fourth wall with you know a fair amount of glee as they you know reference you know the recurring uh, the the cliches of the series well i mean this i think the best entries in the series come from directors who weren't really doing their first film necessarily and here we have tom mclaughlin who had done a couple different things before this. He directed one sort of indie thing that plays a little bit like Phantasm called One Dark Night. And it's not a perfect film, but it is a lot of fun. I remember One Dark Night. One Dark yeah. Night was a song. Well, in, in this movie, is clearly made by a filmmaker. There's yes. amazing segues in it. Really smart sound overlays. You gave it, you know, the compliment that it's better than part five, which is a pretty easy limbo bar to yes if you to get under but if you is, had this to is a good, this is a solid film this is a mm-hmm. this this is a this is a movie made with care and humor and style I'm for sure part six i i think it succeeds in a, in a lot of ways and it starts right from the top it this does some things that will illustrate why we like it so much more than i think what i'm trying to get to is 
here's why we like it more than part five. It starts off on a dark and stormy night, literally. And from then on, goes through the trouble of always telling you who's in a scene, why they're there, what place they happen to be in, and what their purpose is. And then something changes, and they react to it, and it builds from that point on. You know, like a movie. I think one of the things that Part 6 does the best is transmute the Friday the 13th formula into a monster movie. It literally starts where every other movie ends, with Jason leaping out from underneath something to grab somebody. The corpse of Jason now is reanimated completely, whereas the end of this, that has always been a dream. Now it is the reality, and everyone has to live with it from this moment on. And we get sort of a an, almost a 1940s mummy sequel sort of Jason movie, where this living corpse runs from point A to point B to point C to point D, killing people along the way in a path of destruction. Well, he's also killing people who are people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing how likable the cast in this movie is. Often the criticism of these, <laughs> of these films is that the characters are pretty generic and interchangeable. Mm-hmm. But starting from, a, you know, starting from the get-go, Tommy... He's played by the same actor, you know, who's, you know, from Return of the Living Dead, who's, yes. you know, which is one of my favorites of all time, is a completely engaging leading man, even if he seems completely out of his, completely out of his mind. <laughs> I think it's kind of important that that we like him because the very important point that needs to be made here is that nothing in this movie would take place. If Tommy didn't decide to drive up to Crystal Lake slash Forest Green and dig this creature up and then get so mad at the corpse that he stabs it with a fence post, which then gets electrified by lightning and zim zam zim, we've got ourselves a Frankenstein's monster. Now, I do have a question whether this is regular lightning. Or oh. some sort of supernatural lightning. In, he's very obviously a desiccated corpse in the casket. And mm-hmm. then by the time when he climbs out of the casket, he... I mean, he doesn't look good, but he definitely, you know, is a you know fully formed and mostly functioning human body. Whereas mm-hmm. he, he, you know, in the casket, he looked like a, a shriveled, you know, worm-eating, worm-eaten bag of bones. So it's, that's not ordinary lightning. Yeah, I mean, un- I- unless you are to assume that on, in this universe, ordinary lightning has the power to resurrect the dead. We just don't have any other way to test the theory because I can't remember anyone else being struck by lightning. Th- so. That really seems well, to be I mean- something that the Mistbusters should handle. <laughs> well, and even within Frankenstein, which, you know, putting this into horror history seems mm-hmm. to have a little bit to do with, it wasn't just lightning, and it wasn't just a dead body. I always wondered why Dr. Frankenstein created a crazy patchwork quilt of a of a body to resurrect when simply bringing back a single dead body to life would have been fairly spectacular scientific achievement all on its own um why he wanted to up the difficulty by putting a brain in a head attached to a torso in each of the arms and legs and presumably limbs came from yet other corpses um well, maybe he was going for some sort of uh you know ripley's believe it or not 
certification or <laughs> well, I think, world I think record. He, I think he gets there with a single body. Um, uh. But there may, in the Shelley book, she's, I think she purposely obscures a, a big part of the process and doesn't talk about everything that he's done to bring the body back. You know, mm-hmm. In the movies, do you see them injecting the the monster with drugs and things before the lightning activation? Not necessarily that I can think of. They, they always have that thing that you can buy in a Spencer's Gifts that sort of like generates the, the electricity and that always seems to do, has something to do with like the... the, tes- the Tesla yeah, 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 it always seems to have something to do with, with, with uh, the, directing the electricity. The process. But, I mean, I think, I see this movie and see the intentionality of this lightning and think that I believe that's a demo- that, that lightning is a demonic force, um, and it's more than simple static electricity. Well, um, he's literally asked to raise the dead. His his goal is to kill this thing that has essentially been killed, right. and because he's come back into town, he starts the cycle over again. I mean, that's kind of the underlying theme here is that they've they've changed the name of the town from Crystal Lake to Forest Green to Forget. And here comes old Tommy 3.0 to, to start to this whole thing over again. Yeah. Um, um, so let's get right into this movie because there's there's a lot to talk about. And feeding into that sort of monster movie vibe, there's mist covering all of the ground. I mean... Like, people who worked on 1941, the Wolfman, are like, that's a lot of mist. (laughs) And then some of it is an aesthetic. I think it's one of those things that works really well in black and white. And in color, it seems very, this is a movie. You can picture the guy with the smoke. You can picture the grip operating the the smoke machine. Yeah, I can picture a guy wafting it. You know, more, more, less, less, less. (laughs) All right, let it set. Let it settle. Once once upon a time, I had to work a smoke machine for a promo shoot for Fox Sports's NHL coverage. So we were smoking like hockey masks and pucks. <laughs> and it I breathed that stuff from six o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And I've never been the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the smoke, like a lot of things, puts this movie clearly in, like in the Frankenstein lightning. Um, the alcoholic groundskeeper at the graveyard. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's clearly putting this movie into context with classic horror movies. Um, you know, he's not doing a naturalistic thing here. Um, my question is, at the beginning, we see them drive. There's the, there's a very disturbing cut where we see them driving past a piece of roadkill mm-hmm. on their way to the grave. And when you cut inside of the car, Ron Plillo, um, a.k.a. Alan Dawes in this film, but best known for being Arnold Horshack, mm-hmm. is picking his teeth and like chewing at some <laughs> little like chicken bone. And I can't help in my mind but connect it to that roadkill that we saw as they drive past it. It just bothers me. What do you have any idea what he was eating? I've always interpreted it as a straw, Gina. Well, it's it's road trip food. You know, I mean, the, the <laughs> this this whole sequence, you made me very nostalgic for the days, you know, my younger days when, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you, you both, you know, when you, when it was easier when to take time. When you escaped from the mental hospital with 
uh, on your way to dig up the corpse of the maniac who killed your older yeah, sister. Yeah, Gina had a very eclectic childhood. Yeah, you know, it's it's all right, sure. Yeah, you know, we'll just stop for some Duncan along the way. It, it, it'll be cool. You know, we'll put some. I got this mixtape we can play. That that'll be. Have you, have you heard this band called Nirvana? They're pretty cool. And, you know, you, you, you hit those Jersey back roads, you know, I mean, that's and you see a lot of roadkill in, on Jersey back roads. Let me tell you. Um, now, this brings us to a, an interesting proposition. And Rodney, I have to admit, Rodney was the very first person I asked to be a guest on, on this show. Um, and when we started talking about it, there was one question I wanted to ask. And that is, let's say. You happen to be a resident of a mental institution, but you know that you're getting out, and so is your buddy. And you turn to that buddy and say, hey, I'm going to go back to this one place in the Jersey woods, dig up an old serial killer, and re-kill it. Will you join me? And that person says yes. My question is, what is the quid to that pro quo? (laughs) Well, regardless, you have to give Arnold... Arnold Dawes? Alan. Archie Dawes? Alan. Alan Dawes is what a good friend he is. <laughs> to go. Uh, first off, I didn't think that they were discharged. I'd assumed that they had escaped. They did. He said yeah. something about if they hear about this, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I don't think they just yeah, got out. So, yeah. Well, you know, he says, like, well, they'll throw us back in. So that made me believe that they had, had been released at some point and that this behavior would return them there could be but you know there's that joke you know um a friend helps you move a good friend helps you move a body what kind (laughs) of a amazing friend helps you dig up a body (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's he's remarkably easygoing nothing seems to 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 ruffle him he's like okay well here's the grave well you know i'm gonna dig it up just to make sure well you know i'm gonna open the casket yeah all right you, you you do you buddy this is this is therapeutic i i i get this and he's asthmatic and has heart problems, and he's still there for him. And he actually, yeah. after Jason comes back to life, it's Alan who runs over to hit him over the head with a shovel. And he's, he's clearly horrified. It isn't like he's a macho action hero. He's more scared than, you know, anybody watching the movie, than anybody watching the movie. And he still steps up to the plate. You know, you can't, you, you can't overstate. What a solid friend. Yeah, my Alan, advice... Alan Dawes is. My advice in life is to find someone who looks at you like Ron Palillo looks at Tommy Jarvis 3.0. Yeah, we, it's we, both... we really need to do, we really need to do like a special video, just all clips of Alan set to, set to that's what friends are for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he Alan, just, he gazes at him with both equal parts awe, lust... And just being scared shitless at what's coming out of this guy's mouth. Because the idea here is we're going to go and we're going to dig up Jason Voorhees. And and Alan is like, well, that's not going to make your hallucinations go away. He goes, oh, 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 but burning the body will. That's not true. I don't think that's a solution for hallucinations that I am aware of. That's been signed off by the American Medical Association. <laughs> That's good. The notion that he was looking at it with lust is interesting because I was looking, I, I was reading up on Welcome Back, Cotter um, mm-hmm. in preparation for this because I have a vague memory of watching that show as a kid and seeing Arnold Horshack as, you know, the Jewish nerd. 
And, you know, growing up as a Jewish kid in the suburbs, like the Jewish nerd stereotype character is one that I will always had, you know, a troubled relationship with. You know, mm-hmm. representation is nice, but always being the nerd and never being the romantic lead or action hero is a little depressing. Mm-hmm. But what surprised me is that I saw a lot of people were writing that they recognized Arnold Horshack as gay and that they were, you know, happy to see represent, see him representing re- representing that audience. I, and I was just compl- I was completely oblivious to any of that as a kid. Did you know that Horshack was gay? Outside of thinking, you know, Freddie Boom Boom Washington was fucking awesome. I don't know. <laughs> There's just it never really cemented for me that that it was one thing or the other. But then again, it doesn't it, it doesn't throw me off at all because they were all sort of uh, they at least from my recollection, all of the sort of sweat hogs. They weren't necessarily a gang. They were more like outcasts that banded together like the goonies yeah well it was also um you know in hindsight a pretty diverse group of kids yes um you know down to juan epstein um you know half jewish half puerto rican so returning back once again to to friday the 13th part six i i have questions so, sure go for <laughs> it. i have questions of logic which aren't really don't really much have a place much in horror but i'm gonna ask them anyway no, please go for uh, it. I have a little list here. Um, how did he get the mask? See, this goes back to the sort of well, Crystal Lake CSI right? problem where Jason was able to get the head of his mom in part two and the sweater. Like, where, where are, where's all the evidence being held here? Because it seems to be very transactional. Or did he find another mask and just fashion it to look like Jason's? Um, I do well, not there, know. Is there is there a is there a injure is there a split in the mask that corresponds with the machete to the head that I think I remember him taking in part four. Well, he had the uh, the mask take... was off in that in that one. They, she knocked the mask off with the with the uh, machete in part four. I think. Yeah, that notch is actually from a axe wound in part three. And yes, it does have it does have the axe wound mark in the part three axe wound mark. So. This seems to be the actual mask which he has brought and, and, and allowed to and allowed to keep in a psychiatric hospital. Apparently, uh, well, uh, he could have. He well, one thing I remember from part four, and this also gets into there. Like, there's the, the funny quality of the of the series. You know, is unlike like today's franchises, like a Harry Potter or something, where it's always envisioned as this long running um, mega story. That mm-hmm. we are ticking off along the way. The Friday of the Thirteenth series is kind of an amazing, you know, game of telephone, where one team ends and another team picks up the pieces, and clearly is not following the trajectory that the last team had intended. <laughs> because, like, the end of Part Four, it looks pretty clearly like Tommy is supposed to become a new Jason. It, it's fun to watch them either ignore. Or pick up the clues 
from from one installment to the next and try to imagine them all in some kind of greater Marvel Comics continuity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. Br- that brings me to my second question. Who paid for Jason's headstone? Yes, right? <laughs> what kind of a service Wouldn't, was that? Shouldn't he Who be in a... Who came to the funeral? Yeah, he should be maybe in a potter's field or, or, or cremated. And honestly... Would his would his gravesite be a matter of public record that that Tommy would be able to walk right into the cemetery and say, "Yep, there it is." Well, he does <laughs> check the other headstones along the way in a rather slipshod way. He's going around looking at headstones, and then three paces behind him is Ron Palillo also looking at the same headstones. I don't. It's not a, I don't even think not really it, spread out. I, Maybe he came across an editorial in the local newspaper <laughs> condemning the city. For giving him Jason the dignity of a proper funeral and a gravestone, and that lit the fire beneath him to to make him r- rush out to desecrate the grave. And that's why the press is the enemy of the people. Anyways, <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> oh god, um, yeah, uh, I I'll take that as an explanation, one hundred percent. Um, yeah, that gravestone, although, is beat to hell. That's the one thing I appreciate about it. The very top of it looks like local yokels have been coming out there and beating the shit out of that headstone for evs. Well, I suppose it's better than uh, the, the, the hillbillies from Tommy's Dream and beginning of part, uh, part five, where you're pretty sure they're going to molest the corpse. It would have been nice to have had, to, for, for the grave to have been already desecrated and covered in graffiti. <laughs> well, how long, about how long is this supposed to be between part five and now? I mean, I mean, not very, is it? Because he would be about twelve-ish in in part four, right? And then, if you were to say, I think we kind of guesstimated that it might have been five years, because he. He's supposedly going to re-enter society, which is why he's at this halfway house. So one assumes that he's on the precipice of his 18th birthday. So let's say around six years. This doesn't seem to be much farther past 18. I think they want to project that he's 22, 23, 24 Okay. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And he looks a little older. He certainly but, doesn't. But, he but, certainly you know, doesn't look twenty. But the sweat hogs didn't look sixteen either. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and I think I'm, Ron Palillo is probably at least in his God rest his soul is probably at least in his forties at this point, and he's just playing this dude that's hanging out with his buddy from the psychiatric hospital. Going to dig up a corpse, bro. <laughs> but he could be any age at that point. I mean, he's you know in and out of mental hospitals. He's not working a straight job. You know. <laughs> He, he 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 could be this twenty-year-old kid's forty-year-old um, schizophrenic hospital friend. That's true. Um, I love Ron Palello has a couple moments in here where you can really tell that the director Tom Claflin uh, was trained as a mime in France because there's these. <laughs> Is that true? Silent. <laughs> Yeah, he absolutely was. He was trained. He went to France and learned to be a mime there. So you get a couple of these physical comedy bits throughout this, which I think work to the vibe of the movie. It's oh got yeah, that sort of I mean, 1940s vibe. Yeah, in this movie, it's very. It, it's this is peak meta for for the Friday the Thirteenth movies. I, I literally groaned out loud knowing what was happening when Alan stops. Says, "Oh, my heart can't take it." And I'm like, ah, ha, 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 ha. he's gonna get his heart ripped out. Oh, foreshadowing! You know? <laughs> Some people have a strange idea of entertainment. 
like like prom night uh, foreshadowing here is just literal shadowing um yeah ron Palillo has this extended double take that makes the pigeon in moonraker seem like cary grant you know, I, I watch it, though, and I feel a little bad for him. I, I, I have an imaginary backstory while I watch it that Ron is trying to put in a more measured, naturalistic performance mm-hmm. and the that he's trying to move on from the legacy of Arnold Horshack to begin a new phase in his career and that, you know, they just drag him back to it. And they say, yeah, tell you what, we'll let you do a low-key take. If you do, give us a broader one. Then we'll have choices. And if we don't like the broad one, we'll you we'll use the mellow one. You know, and then mm-hmm. they kind of just wore him down to get to, to to get that stuff out of him. Yeah, he's he's a little he's about a second away from doing the whole Lucas Dell <laughs> thing when, when when Jason starts coming out of the out of the ground. There is one thing, Tom Matthews, who's playing Tommy three point here. Like um, is, is just about the only actor I can think of outside of Wilford Brimley who's consistently wearing suspenders in multiple movies. He's just <laughs> yeah, he's got the, adamantly yeah, he's, anti-belt. He's got those jeans up at nipple, almost at nipple height, which is which is odd for for a guy in his twenties. That's something you definitely see, you know, Grampy doing. <laughs> and you know, he's obviously in the peak of health. So I don't. It's not really covering well, something up. Well, how it's far just out are we from Morgan? How, how far out are we from Morgan Mindy at, at, at this period? Uh, that would have been late seventies into early eighties, and right here, I think we're talking eighty six. All right. So, so it's a little bit trend, later they're chasing, on. They're, they're chasing trends. Not at the bleeding edge of fashion. The, Possibly. It's just, it just in both Return of the Living Dead and here to have suspenders, seems like he's one of those guys like the old Kids in the Hall sketch where they have the actor and they're like, I untuck. You're like, yeah, but you've been cast in the movie and the one thing that that's requirement for the role is that you tuck your shirt in. No, I don't do that. I untuck. And he's... I'm permanently suspenders if you're gonna make me wear that canadian tuxedo i gots to have my suspends <laughs> the other thing that i really liked in that pre or post dig sequence is that the uh sort of friday the 13th motif trope of the audio playing back from part four starts with die 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 this time it's reversed all the dies come first and then you hear his sister say, Tommy, get out of here. As if his memories are telling him, stop doing this. That, my friends, is the movie telling you something, even if it's not telling you something, and it's filmmaking. <laughs> filmmaking magic. <laughs> Listen, we just came out one, of part five. One plus one equals three. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, uh, then we get the magic lightning strike. We get two for good measure, just in case the first one didn't wake him up. And uh, we get that reveal that he's grown eyes, which I didn't need. I think almost think it would have been better if he did not have eyes. But okay. And then you get that one little giveaway. that They filmed the maggots with him sitting up because one of the maggots drops. That's oh, the only yeah. giveaway that he's not laying down. You know, the the effect when he gets out of the, the, the grave and is standing there and like the, the, the maggots are all like falling all over his shoes and all that. That's 
that's pretty effective. I gotta say, it totally is. I was like, I mean, one hundred percent. I hadn't watched this in a in a long time, and I watched it. I'm like, ew, that's pretty. That's pretty gnarly. It's a straight up monster movie, and I. That's why it works. It's kind of like the Incredible Melting Man, made by a person who knows what he's doing. <laughs> And it's not nearly as misogynistic. Take that, incredible melting man. <laughs> Booyah! Hottest takes. Roasted. The hottest takes only on Kill by Kill. Uh, so Jason gets electrified. He wakes up. We get that reverse lake scare. And then, as Rodney said, Ron Palillo to the rescue. He comes over with that, that shovel to try to take his head off. It does not work. And, yeah. He would have been, per- he would have, he would have been perfectly within his rights to have just ditched at that moment you know yes 100 percent. that's a that's a true friend nobody would have held it held it against him (laughs) the the i think the mental health system may have held it against him and brought him (laughs) back in that's my guess and then he gets his heart ripped out from the front into the back which tells you that we are now at beyond sort of super strength we are at sort of godlike levels with jason Voorhees. we've immediately stepped up the stakes here from one power set to the next i also thought that we had briefly um gone segued back to uh part three and 3d (laughs) well this is a this is a much better 3d film (laughs) there are are a lot of hearts and in 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 poles and lightning bolts shooting right out of the screen they should reverse engineer a, a 3d version of this one this would make a fantastic conversion. So, as we say always, Alan Hawes, R.I.P.D. You will be missed uh, because you were a good friend and you carried the shovels <laughs> and you complained a little, but you had used all within your rights. And then we go to just to inform the audience exactly how meta this movie is going to be. We get the Jason as James Bond opening. I fucking love it's- that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love that, and I love I, lo- I love the bleeding credits. I just think that that's just the most wonderful thing ever. After all this time, after movie after movie after movie of explosions telling you it's Friday the Thirteenth, and there are this is the first time an explosion has even happened in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. It's like no, that's not what they're about. It's about gushing blood. I, I do have to say that's probably a better Bond opening than almost all of Roger Moore's run. Because he always looks like he just injured his hip when he turns around to shoot. He always looks startled. What? I mean, if you added get off of my lawn to it, it wouldn't seem out of place. Yeah, that's that's how you uh, that's I, how you know this is this is not a motion picture to be taken seriously. And it is to you sit sit back and enjoy. And so we get our, our credits as we usually do with uh, white type on black. Then when we return, Tommy's made his way to the sheriff's office, which tells you that this is no longer Crystal Lake. It is Forest Green. They tell you where the movie takes place. And I don't know if you remember this, Rodney, but in part five, they never tell you where that movie takes place. Oh, I, I've got no memory of that. I'll, <laughs> you, I'll, I'll, I'll how could you it. have a memory of something that does not exist? <laughs> um, but do you think it takes place like across the country? 
We not, don't know. Not anywhere Crystal Lake adjacent? The only marker that it gives us is that the, the faux psychologist who is running the halfway house has a degree from New York University. Okay. But beyond that, just, it just, doesn't... Just like the director of the film. <laughs> they just don't care, frankly. It's not important to them to tell you. And we may be the only ones who've ever brought it up. <laughs> well, the, 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 show, the sheriff's station thing in this one is interesting. And it kind of was a, um, I don't know if red herring is the word, but it, it made me anticipate a movie that we didn't quite get, which mm-hmm. was that if Tommy stayed locked in the jail cell and Jason was trying to get him, We'd have sort of a assault on Precinct Thirteen situation on our hands. Oh man! Supernatural slasher, which could have been an inter- a, a, a cool direction for it. I love that idea, actually. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> Why isn't that movie happening? Yeah, I mean, instead well, we just get a, a two for one on on the the ubiquitous, ineffective law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, but then again, let's put ourselves in their place just for a moment. They are reacting to what this guy is telling. A, he has no identification. B, the last known location of Tommy was a mental institution. And three, he just walked into your office saying, Jason Voorhees, the guy I killed, happens to be alive. And that, to me, is a lockable, upable offense. Well, fair enough. But, but <laughs> I do I do feel that it is telegraphed very early on that, that they, too, will, will, will die violent, wasted deaths. But at least they have personality and not in the sort of gum-chewing, cigar-chomping way of, of the last ineffective sheriff. These people have vibrancy to them. One guy likes to eat. One guy is the hothead. One's the sheriff who wants you to shut up. <laughs> he also wants his like daughter everyone to, to shut up. To, he also wants his daughter to listen and be a good little girl. Yeah. Stay out of trouble. <laughs> don't go cha- go and and don't be hanging around with insane people who have tried to who have who have resurrected uh, serial killers. Yeah, no matter how dreamy they might be in their suspended high-waisted jeans. <laughs> and he is dreamy and so is she. God damn, I love the cast in this movie. It's fantastic. They are, um, they, I mean, they, I, I've said it before, we've said it before, but they are likable. I mean, all these uh, all these kids, which which kind of gets me back to, like, I remember, you know, as a, as, as a kid watching the first one, I had this strange, the, the reaction I had to, like, trying to... I, I was trying to talk Jason or, you know, at the, I guess at that point, the unknown killer mm-hmm. out of killing the um, counselors. <laughs> and the thought that the, 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 the thought that articulated my head was their bodies are so beautiful. Why do you want to ruin them? <laughs> kill, 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 kill. Break, break. Well, hey there, hi there, ho there, killers. It's your old pal Patrick Hamilton. I'm breaking into the action ever so quickly to give you the rundown on what's happening in the world of Kill by Kill. Of course, you probably are already aware of this, and if you aren't, um, here's some information for you. (laughs) Hot off the presses. We're part of the Ear Trumpet Audio Network, and it just so happens that we have launched our Patreon page. That's right. You can donate to your favorite show on the internet. And I know that isn't us, but maybe we're in the top five and you could contribute to us at patreon.com slash ear trumpet. That's 
patreon.com slash E-A-R-T-R-U-M-P-E-T and look for all sorts of goodies to come in the future. Once we get this up and running, there's going to be exclusives for killers that you are going to want to check out. Let me tell you that for sure. You know, we always ask people to give us a review on iTunes and that we will read the review here on the air just so happens that we have one from Brett V, last name withheld, who talks about our show in, in wonderful uh, words and tone. And he states that his favorite kill from the Friday the 13th series is the character of Adrian, who gets her face frozen in liquid nitrogen and then smashed into a thousand pieces in the cinema classic Jason X. I was in middle school and had seen all the previous films on VHS with a friend, And this was our first Friday movie in a theater. Needless to say, this first major kill was awesome. I haven't seen a kill like it since. Aww, it's true. It's unique. Hey, do you have a favorite kill in the Friday the 13th series? Why don't you leave us a review on iTunes and tell us all about it, and I will read it here on the air. And before we go, a very quick shout-out to one of our greatest killers, Megan Dooley. Uh, Unfortunately, she had a little accident. She has a broken limb. It's terrible. But Megan, we love you here at Kill by Kill, and we sure hope you feel better soon. Okay, and with that, the body count continues. Kill, 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 kill. Break, 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 break. I mean, I, I, I also kind of compare a certain, like, the, the people's first explorations of horror movies, um, maybe more to volunteering um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the military. But, you know, I think there's a notion that a lot of young people have you know is that they want to expose themselves to something chaotic and dangerous and life-altering and sort of come out changed on the other side Mm -hmm. um you know i know i was teaching an editing class and a lot of the students were military they were on the um, gi bill and there a lot of them were in the marines and one of them was quoting full metal jacket and you know i had to ask him did you see Full Metal Jacket before or after you volunteered for the Marines? And then, like, he was, you know, fighting in the Middle East. And he said, I saw it before. <laughs> and I said, really, did that movie encourage you or discourage you from joining? And he said, I've got to tell you the truth. It made, it made me want to join. It made me want to join more. And God bless him, you know, and I think that that's slightly disturbing, but a common you know, kind of human, kind of human feeling. And, you know, I think that the Friday the 13th movies were my PG rated, incredibly wimpy, um, media, sit in a chair and eat popcorn version of going to war. <laughs> the notion of trying to expose myself to these, you know, kind of harrowing sights and sounds in an well, attempt to, you know, come out on the other side, you know, a mature man who's <laughs> <laughs> seen 10 episodes of Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I think this speaks to some of what I think makes you very effective as a filmmaker in that you've been very good at finding a way to explore something that people talk about, but it's very difficult to demonstrate. And that is an artist can make art and they make their statement, but because it is art, it doesn't end there. The person who then views the art has their own interpretation of what that is and it can have a complete life 
of its own. You know, when it comes to something like Full Metal Jacket, you have something with the intent of exposing the the inherent evils of a militarized force. You just simply cannot control this. Conversely, someone else can look at that and go, you know what? That's everything I've ever wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> and so one's original intent, you can do everything in your power to delay that out for people. But that's just a banquet. People take from it what they want to consume. Yeah, and exactly. what they do with it is out, out of your control. Though I think it might be unfair to grade Full Metal Jacket on how well it frightened teenagers away from joining the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't Certainly. think it's, a, it's a, the only measure that I put yeah. up to it. But yeah, you know, and I don't. I think Apocalypse Now might have had a similar effect because you know that one is pretty far out, man. You know, I'd say that kind of an old controversy that making an anti-war movie is the hardest thing in the world because war is inherently cinematic to keep it in with within kubrick i think paths of glory might be one of the few that really make it look futile stupid and dangerous <laughs> so we've gotten very esoteric and i knew that this would happen um. <laughs> so then there's the, so then there's this very nice couple in a vw bus and a, on a muddy road yes so now we're we're back to uh forest green after tommy 3.0 has been locked up uh, we have a very nice couple uh, that includes the wife of the director. And then we have Tony Goldwyn. Yes. Scandals Tony Goldwyn uh, looking dewy here. And I saw and, him and, and I'm like, oh, shit, he got killed off really fast. This will be the last episode where we reference part five. It's no, just it because won't. we're coming out. No, it won't. Uh, <laughs> but here's a quick example of where this succeeds and part five fails. In that these people are only on screen briefly for the express purpose of being killed. But in the meantime, they're also demonstrating something. And that is Jason Voorhees is making a journey from one place to the inevitable location of Camp Crystal Lake. And they are part of it. They're on their way to the campground of what used to be Camp Crystal Lake. They tell you this. They're on their way. They got lost. They're in the middle of the forest. And there's a banter between them, which is fun and is acted well. And instead of being irritated by their constant, you know, what could be just ear gratingly horrible, their performances and general countenance is delightful. And you have a good time with them up until they do not have a good time. Yeah, they put a lot into a role that only lasts for each of them less than five minutes, maybe. I have a feeling that these two either had a banter previous that they knew one another or were just that damn good where they could just fall into a rhythm because once again we have this sort of 1940s patter happening where everyone has a quip and everyone has a line and no one has to think too hard to come up with it and it just it just happens it's so much fun to watch i'm just thinking i just sit back and enjoy i i i, I hate to do to again keep falling back on part five but compare this to billy and lana at the diner oh. <laughs> <laughs> and just where a guy who you've been introduced to reading porn while on the job transporting mental health patients is going to take someone on a date whom you do not know, you don't know where they are, he arrives honking, telling her to get her ass out of the diner that she works at with a cat and food still left on the counter. She goes into the bathroom and exposes her breasts to herself 
for no particular reason, and then they both die. Yeah, and quack, and quack. you're just like making that those that Arthur clenching of the fists, where just waiting for these characters to 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 be be killed off as they so richly deserve. Like these two, I'm like, oh man, wow, they 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 spent a lot of time sort of developing these characters, only to have them just taken out almost immediately. Well, and you also, I mean, you were talking about the the, the large geography of where they are in the road to where the camp is. Um, there's also like the smaller scene geography where the car stuck in the mud digs that trench that she later falls into. You know that you know you could draw a little you, you could draw a nice little diagram of reverse engineer where the characters are, where the car is, where Jason was standing. Um, you know it's not quite Brian De Palma um, <laughs> doing the um, that that walk around in the mall at. Uh, in, I was going to say body double, body yeah. Double. <laughs> <laughs> where you where you could build a 3D model of that mall of that uh, Beverly Hills uh, mall, but it's pretty good, and you keep that all in mind. Um, you know, it helps drive the scene. There's that weird. There's a weird emphasis on like she tries. She thinks that he's a robber and gives him money, which he's insulted by. <laughs> and like the last thing you see is like her credit card in the. Wallet. I don't take American like, Express. But the it's, rumor it's, is it some anti-money kind of a statement is there would he even know what money is no and and where does he get off being insulted (laughs) to be compared to a like a robber is worse than what he is in jason Voorhees' defense he was going to kill her anyways so whatever she did before that was of no consequence to what the end point was eventually going to be but i do feel like there's a possibility that it played on two fronts. One was that they were going to make a little stab at yuppies. Not that mm. either of them really come off to me as yuppies in a beat up VW bug, but there's that. And secondly is the call and response idea, which is that the American Express ends up floating on the water with the inevitable belief that someone in some audience in some theater yells out, don't leave home with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, well. That's like I said. Like 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 they're hoping this is going to become a Rocky Horror type of. <laughs> I, I well, that's that, not that's not bad to leave that out there. No, um, there's there's also maybe a Kafka kind of quality to it, where you know, like the gatekeeper, he says, "I will, I I will give you an opportunity to offer me money so that you will not." You, so you 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 will not meet your maker wondering whether there was something that you could have done <laughs> that you did that, that you did not try. Yeah, imagine if his thought. <laughs> imagine if his thoughts actually were that deep. He just had no idea how to vocalize, and he's so frustrated. But he just like punches through people's chests and runs people through with spears. Because you know how it is when you try to you're trying to articulate something and you just can't find the right words it's frustrating although the notion of his motive i mean as much of an unstoppable killing machine as he is is still a little bit of a question of is he after counselors because they have neglected in his mind you know they neglected him as a camper and as a species counselors neglect um campers <laughs> or does he take offense when you know he has these little interactions with people? Are they obstacles in his way? If they had stepped aside, would he have just walked right past them? I know? think in this particular film, people are obstacles in his way. I, I I think that one of the things they made sure to do to bring this back to the idea that 
a camp is involved and a camp is and this is the one friday the 13th movie that has an actual working camp in it with actual kids and he does not and, takes it up and notch. he does not even bother with those kids which is the which no. is the i mean i'm sure that was a deliberate choice but yeah i mean he as far as he's concerned they're not even they might as well not even be there well don't see him actively choose to spare them it may be that he is has bigger he has bigger targets. It's not much of a challenge to kill an eight-year-old. <laughs> is this about challenge? Uh, have you tried, he's, Gina? He's, they are wily. How much? How much of a challenge is any of this for him? Well, that's true. I mean, he's I mean, not, he does. He's, he's not trying to push himself to excellence here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once you're able to punch your fist through someone's body and take their heart with them, I mean, really, what sort of physical you know, obstacles could really could really get in your way at this point i mean as far as like what is driving him i think that is a good point we might really be coming back to the idea that camp crystal lake has a death curse that by the very fact that he, that he drowned and yes i know the the continuity of this is insane but try to follow me because this is the movies we have to work off of because he drowned and that death was due to negligence and then his mother goes on a rampage and she gets her head cut off that because the core uh, crime was never really uh, vanquished, like because vengeance never really was sated, that he is now doomed to forever return to this location and kill. It's just like... It's the grudge, just writ large. Yeah, you see, I, I, I still see in him a misguided notion that he is in somehow a protector of children, that which 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 is something that they could have explored more deeply when he met Freddy, who preys on children. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Well, that probably might have come up in one of the fifteen versions of the script that they wrote <laughs> before they actually filmed one. But they couldn't really screw their head on straight of what kind of movie they wanted to do. But I like, again, you've now come up with two solid movies I want to see, Rodney. <laughs> two. All right, all right. We, we've um, only been into this for a little while. I mean, you're pitching me and it's working. I like it. Let's let's uh, rewind the clock a little bit so that we, we get into Tony Goldwyn's uh, passing uh, before Elizabeth's. So these two counselors are driving along a muddy road after the rain. Uh, they literally almost run into Jason Voorhees, and their first idea is to run him over. That doesn't work. The second idea is for Tony Goldman to grab the world's daintiest <laughs> pistol. I love this little pea. I, was, I love this little pea shooter he takes out of his out of his glove compartment. Oh, it's almost as if he uh, went into a gun shop and said. I'd like something that makes a starter's pistol seem intimidating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you totally expect to see water just streaming out of the end of that thing. The fact that it doesn't have a plastic cap at the end of it is kind of a miracle. <laughs> it's it's so thin. I don't know what it might it might shoot the Virginia Slims of bullets. <laughs> I don't know what comes out of it. It's little little plastic but pellets. The, but here again, you have Jason. No longer, he's come a long way from in part two still playing his mom's game and part three to a degree of luring people into traps and then springing on them to sort of the freight train he becomes in part four 
And here, he's just, yeah, he's the mummy, he's Godzilla. You get in his way, you get stomped. And he... He's just like, he's just a wall of decaying flesh at this point. And he just takes people out. He's not afraid of your car. He's not afraid of your VW pug. You're not going anywhere. I'm going to take out your tire. You're going to shoot me. I'm going to take this fence post and stick it through you and then pole vault you to death. <laughs> That's right. Tony Goldwyn dies via pole vaulting on a spear. Yeah, he gets some good air on him. <laughs> he does. Unlike other films where we've seen Jason lift an entire body up in the air, this is... For a guy who just got out of the grave, that's some serious muscle behind him. Well, then it cuts right to another um, scene that looks like it was shot in 3D, where he he penetrates the windshield. Here's the other tidbit I know from this section of the movie. And that is, the actress almost died. Because you can see the trajectory of that spear change once it hits the windshield, where it goes from... It was trying to go to the right of the camera to actually going to below and left. Oh, my God. That's where she's hiding like a couple inches and she's getting speared by that thing. Well, she's so, the director's wife. Yes. And he's <laughs> behind the camera. What happens? And he put her in that situation. It's not I'm, a stunt, honey. Just this. get I've in there. Little, I've got a little cl- window of it. Like, did she, do you even see her in the shot? Was it? It, you can really see the back. You can see the back her. of her head well, duck so, I mean, a little he, he's bit. A wig and and he's just a, a, he's just furiously signing her name onto that life insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> nope. This might have been an elaborate ploy to uh, pay off a loan. Or something. <laughs> but then he's like, you know what? This movie's coming out pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna I was just gonna scrap the whole thing after this, but yeah, this is this was bad. If this was part if this was part five, we'd go for the insurance. <laughs> <laughs> we do see a figure duck to the right but and in and, and all of her interviews she is claiming to be the one who did it so we only have her word to go on and i'm not going to dispute it but until comey writes a memo i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna have to believe it and he would he's he's very fastidious that way and so yeah and uh like uh like rodney said earlier he he tries to pay her off this is when we enter a new sphere of jason Voorhees, ladies and gentlemen that's right we've entered the wizarding world of harry potter jason Voorhees can appreciate he can dissonate and appear uh from in front of you and then jump from behind the bush silently behind you <laughs> this is a brand new power that only comes from, from rising from the grave maybe a second time yeah, to- yeah, the yeah, first, to- time, yeah. first time he just came back ugly with a good head of hair. Yeah, t- Tommy basically turned into an X-Man. <laughs> He's like a nightcrawler all of a sudden. Yeah, you expect He's bamfing all over. You the expect place. him to see him like jumping from like rooftop to rooftop in the cabins at the uh you know kind of just standing off to the side and you know hanging upside down looking into a window. Well, but why but why why does he even bother here? I mean, he has his prey immobilized yeah i think he's learned the joy of fucking with people <laughs> well, well clearly because he you're you know he he mess he intimidates your friend tony for a while mm-hmm. um you know he doesn't just have at them immediately which which again makes it kind of a question that i think they had as well as i do of what does he want out of this like does he just want past them is he angry at, do they represent something you know that he despises 
was was there something they could have said or done to have gotten out of this? Well, they could have pulled the whole, you know, Jason, it's me, little you, or it's 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 me. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good. That that that, that, that Your mom, remember me, mom? Because that seems to work several times. Yeah, he falls for it a whole bunch. Uh, so this that is about the only way to get yourself out of it. But of course, you will need to uh, study some newspaper clips in order to know that. <laughs> Or have taken a lot of psychology classes like Jenny has and just take a wild guess in a crazy situation. And it just really works out for her because she's a super smart character who demonstrates how smart she is throughout the entire movie. So when she does it at the end, you're not like, well, that came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. They set it up. They put her with the stupidest guy in the entire movie and made a point that he's dumb. She's smart. I think that, you know, in his uh, his moment of respite in the grave, that, that Jason has come to terms that he, he likes killing people. So he, he's just going to, you know, he's going to prolong the joy. You know, it's 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 a it, he's edging. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Gina, well, to, to, I, I think to, you may have broken yeah. me. <laughs> well, uh, but, but to that end, the notion that part of what he's trying to do is scare people, that he gets something from that. You know, that first time you see him standing in the middle of the road, it's a nice moment in, you know, they do that a few times in this film, kind of create these sort of static tableaus that, mm-hmm. they, that the camera just kind of lingers on, for, like when he's on top of the, the, the Winnebago, the, you know, this scene some of the um reverse close-ups of him you know within this sequence where it's just kind of a quiet settled still shot of him that almost looks like it was designed for like a motion poster or a gif that could be easily loopable in 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 the other installments there's not too many moments that kind of stand as like self-contained iconic images you know that are ready for framing (laughs) <laughs> well because he's you know he doesn't really necessarily exist in one outside of the carry scare at the end and in the second one they purposely try to keep him hidden for the vast majority of it because they're almost playing to the idea that it may or may not be jason in part three i think you start to get into that iconography but only it only comes up a couple times because they keep him hidden right up until the point he, he, fi- he dons the the hockey mask finally there's that one sequence in the Barn of Doom where he gets the axe to the head and then does the mummy scare right after it. And she's like, yeah, like, no, no, this can't possibly be happening. That's where I think you have the sort of genesis of your idea of of having that moment that you go, no, Jason's at the center of this. And this is the first movie where the in the title sequence, it says Jason lives. Friday the 13th part six. Mm-hmm. This is, this when movie you, is telling you, you Jason is the center of the record that everything plays on without him. Um, nothing rotates. The thing I love about those images too, is, I mean, you can see them created in a wax museum or maybe in a Ravel model kit uh, advertised in the back of a comic book. You know, and the weird thing about the series is you're kind of talking about the different way he's treated. You know, it's like, you know, there's 10 of them at, um, and counting. If you don't include the remakes and, whatever the future has in store for us you know but if somebody said can i just watch one of them to kind of get it you kind of can't because it takes you know three of them before you even gets the mask first <laughs> that there is no one iteration of this idea 
that encapsulate them that encapsulates them all perfectly i have often said on this program and elsewhere that part four is the platonic ideal of what a friday the 13th movie is hmm. which is a bunch of kids in the woods this and they get picked off one by one in a in a sort of old school cozy horror sort of way um as it was a, a phrase once coined because you know exactly what's going to happen. And the joy is just seeing how it plays out. You know that it's going to play out. It's the how you get there that's the fun. And I think part six is another one that you that would edge towards the top of that. Because it's, it's very easy to watch. And uh, it's a very easy concept to swallow for the most part. Because, again, monster movies are pretty well established. As much as I like part six and part ten... I think you need to have already been so you, you need to have seen a bunch of these to really appreciate it that I don't think any I, I wouldn't suggest anybody start with part six or no. say that or, or, or that part six is the is the one and only that anyone ever sees well I mean I think that's one of the reasons that horror um, tends to generate you know experts and obsessives because you know to appreciate this series at all, it's like you have to have the temperament to wade through, to you know, to wade through the garbage to get to the jewels. I want to get back to one thing that you brought up, and that is, what if instead of sticking with the hockey mask, they continued to put him in different headgear every single time? And I turn to you, Gina, in this moment you've just heard about this. <sighs> what is the headgear that we haven't used? that Jason should dawn next in this alternative reality series that we're going to create? Um, you know, my first thought is uh, you know, keep up the sporting motif and go with a catcher's mask, but 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 how ridiculous would that look? I can I could see that. I mean, we haven't gone paper bag yet. That's the other thing. <laughs> or he could go the, the, the sort of Michael Myers route and just have the ghost... Uh, sheet on with the eye holes cut out or you or you go or you go the peanuts and have multiple holes cut out of the sheet that's right have any of these guys gone with like a welder's mask uh that the outside of the exterminator uh which isn't really a horror movie that's that's more your your uh canon films action spectacular um i put spectacular in dick fingers um <laughs> The best moment in Exterminator 2, again, happens in the first three minutes. He blazes up an entire gang of thugs, and then the rest of the movie happens. <laughs> and you, you're like, would you put on that flamethrower and welder's mask and light up some motherfuckers? <laughs> nope. I want to do this entire story about this doughy-faced guy who falls in love with a exotic dancer. Uh Oh boy, it's a terrible movie. So, Rodney, any uh, headgear that you can think of that we might put Jason into from now on? Welder's mask was where I was starting from. I like the idea that it's, you know, sort of if it's it maybe a mirrored welder's mask, so people, <laughs> a la Peeping Tom, can see their own horrified faces. Okay. In its reflection, um, is there such a thing? I think we could order one up from the prop house. Yeah, for sure. You know, you say headgear, and, and all I keep thinking is the thing that people wear when they get braces. And I just think it would be kind of funny just to see Jason walking around with, like, this kind of... This was a Stan sister in, in South Park that had the uh, the headgear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from what I remember. I just... I love the idea of 
of Jason Voorhees and the terrible condition that that nature and God and man has put him into, but with perfect teeth, <laughs> just like Donny Osmond teeth. And I think that would be super scary. It, it would be like if he just kind of like looked at the camera and smiled and it's got that little ting, like the, 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 like the little burst of light from just his magnificent white teeth that are so white they're almost blue. I, I got to go back. I, I think I'm going to have to insist on some sort of mirror so when he looks out into the audience, he can indict us as being just like him. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I mean, the DP on that's going to go crazy. But okay. yeah, I think even better if you kind of do the whole like like natural born killers, like public obsession with this killer, it you know, makes them just as bad as he is. Yeah, something really subtle like that. Some people have got a strange idea of entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> this will be Michael Haneke's uh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> oh, 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 that would be depressing. All right, so this brings us once again to everyone's favorite game show, at least that I know, and I ask, and they say it back to me because they don't want to hurt my feelings, is choose your own death venture. And in this, we decide if we were forced to die in one of the methods that we witnessed in this section of Friday the 13th Part 6, which one would it be? And our choices today are have your heart ripped out through the front of your chest and out through the back or get pole vaulted to death like Tony Goldwyn or get uh, that fence post right through your head uh, like uh, Elizabeth does uh, at the very end of the sequence. And as our guest Rodney, I turn to you first. It's got to be the heart. Got to be the heart. Well, especially it, since you know he went down, he went down swinging. It's a hero's death. You feel? Yeah, hell yeah. Okay, that's a valid answer as it comes. Oh, that also means that you're going to have to carry all the shovels when you get to the graveyard. <laughs> I try to be a good friend. Okay, <laughs> I count you amongst mine. Okay, Gina, what say you? Uh, I'm also going to go with Alan's death for a, but it's for a different reason. Um, as, mm-hmm. as you'll note, he he falls conveniently into the casket, which which closes. And uh, I'd like to save my family the uh, burden of funeral expenses. It's I I don't I don't know if you ever had to pay for a funeral yet. I hope you haven't. They're very expensive. And and I, I don't have much money saved in my uh, my bank account for such things. So I'd, I'd like to go easy on my on my loved ones. You know, it's it's going to be hard enough for them to deal with the fact that my heart has been ripped out of my body by a recently revived maniac who's killed forty people before. You read my mind, Gina. I agree. Getting your heart ripped out is the way to go here. First of all, it's fast, it's convenient, and that casket it's totally worn in. Like, you don't have to worry about gathering worms and spiders. It's super cozy, and you just, you're instantly there. Like, it's over with. And then luck has it, the very next morning, the drunk in the graveyard's just going to cover you up so that he doesn't have to fucking deal with that Right, shit. see, I mean, that's, that's, that's well, easy. Lucky, it's easy. It, it's cost-effective. It works for everyone. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, somebody will stab you with a... Um... A, a fence post and you'll be struck by lightning maybe right. maybe <laughs> and then i can what comes around and goes then around. i can drop out just maggots all over my feet for a really cool effect absolutely all righty we have done it people we're into part six and good times are coming all sorts of crazy deaths all sorts of great guests but before we go Rodney, uh, where can people find you on the internet and hear about what you're doing 
Um, I'm on Twitter, or I've got a site that I um, update once every year or two, um, <laughs> rightmeasher.com. But um, if you want to see um, my favorite hilarious gif of the day or um, track my erratic um, liking activity, <laughs> find me on Twitter. <laughs> and where? What, what is your exact handle it's just, on Twitter? It's just my name. Okay. I mean, it's just my name. <laughs> say that so resigned <laughs> uh gina where can people find you on the internet i continue the uh, the valiant quest to write about 70s and 80s television at tuneintonight.wordpress.com all right people check it out if you want to talk to us there's a pretty simple way to do it we're on twitter as well kill by kill bod or if you have something longer to say to us say longer than 140 characters Send us an email, uh, killbykillpod at gmail.com. We, of course, we implore you to rate and review us on iTunes. I know every podcast asks you to do it, but only we really need you to do it. Because if you rate and review us while on iTunes, we get seen and heard by more people, and they get to have the same fun that you presumably have with us every other Friday. And that does it for the Kill by Kill pod today. So for myself, Gina, and Rodney, bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Kill by Kill is produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Friday the 13th is owned by Paramount Pictures. Jason is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill logo was designed by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.